Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This week, I am talking to mindset coach and the owner of Mindset RX, Tom Foxley. We talk about what exactly is making us tick and what's making us stick. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Europe is Coming podcast, taking you inside the minds of Europe's best CrossFit athletes and the people behind them. Welcome to Europe is Coming. Today I have Tom Foxley. He is a mindset coach for, for CrossFit athletes and I'm really lucky to have him on today because we've had a couple of appointments. Actually, I think maybe one appointment and we neither of us could make it. And, but finally, we are chit-chatting today. Uh, Tom is in the Cotswolds and I have shown him the blue sky of Muirca and unfortunately he couldn't reciprocate. But anyway, it doesn't matter because we're going to talk for the next sort of 40 minutes about mindset and athletes. Welcome, welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. Well, privileged to be chatting with you. Oh, I'm really, oh, yes, well, perfect. You are very privileged to chat with me. Tom, tell me about how um, you got into what you're doing because mindset coaching is something that is becoming more and more of a, a kind of a well-known concept, but it must have taken a while to get to where you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the long story I'll try and abbreviate it as much as possible. Um, but to, like, as with all these things, and especially when we're talking about mindset, they go back to childhood. As a child, I, how do we shorten this up? I was temporarily diagnosed with something called sudden death syndrome. Oh um, my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is the least positive prognosis or diagnosis that any doctor could give, I think. What's happening is I was like, I was when I was playing football, doing any kind of exercise as a kid, if I, got anxious i didn't realize it at the time but it's linked to anxiety if i got anxious i would get extreme palpitations where my heartbeat would get to like 230 240 beats per minute maximums meant to be 220 minus your age right so yeah it should have been somewhere around 205 was my maximum i was going 20 30 beats per minute above that so mm. what that correlated with was for 10 seconds or so either side of this my heart stopping as well so and then i feel like a big build of pressure in my chest and then like consciousness would close in from the outside and it'd be like, oh, okay, this is it. The first few times it was like, oh, this is it. This is me gone. I'm, I'm dying. And like as a 13, 14 year old kid, that's obviously terrifying. And then I'd just kind of go snap back into reality and things would be back to normal. And that would happen on the football pitch. It would happen when I was playing cricket. It would happen when I was running around at lunchtime. Like it'd happen throughout kind of like sporadically without kind of only when I was exercising, but um, it would happen and it'd, it completely so to add some color to that story as well i was a pretty lonely kid stressed out anxious not great like kind of i had everything going for me i actually had a very nice childhood but i was also very lonely at the same time so you can see this kind of like physiology and psychology at the same time and without knowing it looking back at it that's my initial introduction to the connection between the mind and the body like one creates the other they're two like elements of the same system as opposed to be different um two different parts so that all led me down the route of 
growth development, became a Royal Marines commando, um, started coaching CrossFit, started having conversations with athletes, went through a sports psychology mentorship. Not, I'm not a sports psychologist, but I worked with a sports psychologist, mentored under him for a while, mentored under a licensed counselor, started having conversations with CrossFit athletes because I was coaching them on a like one-to-one and group basis. And I was like, oh, we know so much about the physical programming. Like we know sets and reps, we know strength ranges, we know how to develop power, we know how to develop coordination, we know how to develop endurance, we know all of these things. Like even mobility became cool at the same time that I was I was like coaching this arena. And then these conversations that I was having with athletes, they had way more benefit than here's your sets and reps. For me, anyway. Like that's what I experienced because it was, Oh, you're experiencing self doubt. Tell me about that. You're feeling like you just can't get gymnastic skills or you bail out of heavy lifts that you should hear. Like, tell me about that. What's happening in your mind? And inevitably, they describe the comparison element or the self-doubt or the fear or the, the, the kind of pressure and not being able to deal with the pressure and the moment they transitioned to being a good athlete and they kind of went full in, but they couldn't make a count and disappointment of that. And I was like, oh, this is just as important as the physical aspects, arguably even more so because it's mm. our mind that creates our decisions. And that all led me down the route of, coaching people on an ongoing basis like what well, actually led to one seminar and i was like that'll be that done i'll never have to do that again and then people were like can i work with you i was like oh, no but okay i suppose um we can make this work and then it developed into mindset rx over the next six seven years and now i've been doing this for eight years i think total and yeah that's that's how i got to where i am now I am completely in awe of you firstly because you said the word sudden death syndrome like it was just nothing yeah, I've and said so, it a few times and it loses yeah, to me. I know, but whoa. And um and, and also because anybody who really understands that, I mean I'm I'm in my um uh, more I'm all much older than the majority of people that I'm talking to on this podcast. And it still takes me a long time to like kind of fight with my mind. And I'm a grown up, I've got a kid, I've got a mortgage, you know, like it's not a it's not something that is um it's easily acquired. It's something that you really have to work on, isn't it? And for me, that's um, like to see that you acknowledged and realised that at such a young age is really impressive. But I need you to tell me what happened with the sudden death syndrome stuff before we go any further, because I'm going to worry about you for the rest of the podcast otherwise. <laughs> yeah, left on a cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, so obviously that not only inspired my entire family to be terrified, but also like encouraged me to get to the doctors at some point. So mm-hmm. I went to the doctors, had like... A very surreal situation where I was in Papworth Hospital, which is like cardiologist center of the universe. So, like, I just happened to be a few minutes down the road, a 45 minute journey away from Papworth, and saw a cardiologist. It's me and a dozen oxygenarians in this room. And I was like, I don't, there's something different with me here. Did all those tests where they stick electrodes all over your chest and you mm. run on the treadmill. Um, treadmill wasn't really set up for anything other than walking. Um, so I didn't get the results <laughs> I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> saw like images of my own heart on the screen. That was the coolest stuff I've ever seen in my life. I was like geeking out on it. I was doing PE at the same time as well. So I was like loving the physiology element of it. And all of that led to the cardiologist saying, we don't know. I'm oh. not really sure. Um, we don't think it's sudden death syndrome. It could be this, it could be that. You'll probably grow out of it. What that led to is, well, I suppose that's more of the mindset stuff because it's like, am I going to die or not when I train? That was the major question going through my head. And I was not allowed to train for months. It was probably six months or so. I was not allowed to get my heart rate up because, well, probably sensible in the long run, um, but didn't transpire to be useful. 
And then I was like reintroduced training. I suddenly like, yeah, go, go ahead. You, sh- you should be fine. And I was fine. But also then there's like the, the mindset, there's the fear, there's the, do I belong here anymore? Am I good enough to be here? I've lost my ground. I need to work harder to get there. So basically it all, um, it all ends up with, you should be fine. And I still very occasionally get palpitations today, but they're faded out. Not when I physically got fitter or stopped, stopped maturing, developing, like finished puberty. When it's a direct link between anxiety and my physiology. Like if I have too many coffees, that's a huge, in- if I mouth breathe too much, if I don't under eat, if I'm stressed out from work or I spend all day like sitting down looking at a computer, those are all triggers for it to be more likely. And also if I'm just emotionally having a tough time, that makes it more likely. So actually when they stopped you from training for that six months, it might well have done you more harm than good in some ways. Maybe. It was my way of fitting in. Like that was my, like as an outsider kid who was more into music than like kind of socializing and spending time by myself, like classic introvert. It was my way of fitting in and being normal for a few hours a week. And like that was really important to me. So that was taken away from me. But like ultimately, I think it was probably, I'm really grateful for that, which sounds weird. I'm really grateful for everything I went through because it started me on this journey. And if I hadn't been through that, I wouldn't have joined the Royal Marines. I wouldn't be able to get myself out of my own mindset funks. And ultimately, I wouldn't have been able to help over a thousand athletes now flip their mindset. So it's far from the worst thing to ever happen to someone. And I'm not saying that flippantly, um, because I think it's actually it has benefited me in the long run. What was the inspiration for joining the the Marines? Yeah, I um, I was about eighteen or so, and I was in a PE class and doing like the kind of the I think it was like the social side of PE you had to do with the A level. And um, a teacher dropped this little clipping from a newspaper in front of me, and it was from a book called Bounce by Matthew Syed, and mm-hmm. that introduced the ten thousand hour rule to me. I was like, oh wow, ten thousand hours! Like, and this was this is mind blowing to me because it showed me that I couldn't just become apparently a master in anything that I chose to, but I could change who I was at the same time. And that's like the foundation of mindset beliefs. Like that shifted who I believed I was in that moment because it's like, I'm not fixed as I am. I can Mm -hmm. change who I am. So that was really important. And around the same time, I was working landscaping for my parents and this guy dropped in. He was, um, he had this weird tan from like three quarters of the way down his arm to his wrist and then like glove marks. I was like, that is very weird. Um, And he ran everywhere and he had, he was called Bear, not first name, nickname. And I was like, that's a really good nickname for a dude. And obviously he was like the most alpha thing that I'd ever experienced in my life and got chatting to him and he wasn't terrifying. He was just a really sweet guy. He was the same landscape and used to pick up worms and move them out of the way so they didn't get hurt. He's a very sweet guy, very, very nice guy, but he also was a Royal Marines commander. I like him. Yeah, he was, he's a lovely dude. And yeah, he was also a Royal Marines commander. And the reason he had that weird tan line is because Royal Marines typically fold their shirt to here or here. And, um, and he'd been out in Afghanistan, no, Iraq at that point. Um, and he was on R&R, um, so rest and recovery or recuperation. He was mm-hmm. on his way back. And yeah, and he introduced me to the Royal Marines. I was like, I'd never do that. And I was like, huh, maybe I could do that. And I was like, I'd never do that. And then the two things mingled together, the bounce and bear. And eventually I got to the point where I was like, why couldn't I do that? Like, what's the reason why? That looks really tough. I know those those people can do it. Why couldn't I? Mm. And that was kind of one of those um, turning points in my life. The di- I mean, where do you attribute that mindset change then for, for, from the bear and the book or something inside of you was triggered or changing or was it was it something that you had ambitions but you just didn't have a direction or what was it that's a really good question i think 
with every human being, there's something inside us that cor- uh, that like aligns with the hero's journey, mm. where we have that calling within us to be the best we possibly can be and to self-actualize, to become the best we, we can be, to to level up. And that's why people do CrossFit, for example, because it's this calling that we go, oh, okay, that's meaningful to me. I'm going to go to that direction. So I think we always have that, but we need things to push against to get there. But also, like, why does our mindset become our mindset? Like, what creates it? Well, there's evolution. Like, that's part of it, like our biology. So, like, we have that that tendency to avoid difficult, dangerous situations and play it safe because it's evolutionarily good strategy. Um, so that's part of it. There's education, what we're explicitly told. So that book, Bounce, was like an education. But previously, all the times that I've been told that, oh, you're just a quiet boy, like, and you're weak compared to everyone else, like, especially through other other kids, that was education, what's being explicitly told. There's experience, our wins and losses. These are four E's, by the way, which makes yeah. it easier to remember. Um, there's experience, our wins and losses, what we've tried to do in the past and failed at. And then the most powerful one is our environment, which is what we're implicitly taught. So the way that people react to you, and you react to them and that ongoing conversation that's a lot more subtle. That's um that's what created all those beliefs. But like the things that changed it, education, that was a, a huge one. And I didn't really change who I was and my mindset at that moment. But then putting myself in different environments was huge. Like the day you go to Limpston, which is where Royal Marines do their training, and you're like, oh shit, this is a different place. Mm. Um, this is a very different feel. Um that's uh that that changes things hugely. So how, from what age to what age were you in the Navy? It Tom? was, I think I was like 22 to 26. I did the basically bare minimum, uh, four years. And I was trying to set up a CrossFit gym on the side and doing Mindset RX and all those kind of things. So it just didn't work. Um, and there's, there's there's way more that goes into the story of, of leaving and just like different callings, not feeling right at the same time. But like, I just kind of, I was spreading myself too thin. Mm. And it, it led to more stress than was good. And there's also like some personal mental health stuff around there as well. Just feeling like quite, um, quite like I was overstretched as well. And that, that wasn't helping. I mean, I think it takes a very specific kind of personality type to stay in those, in that kind of job. Cause there's so much where you just have to do what you're told. And I'm not certain. I don't know if you'd really fit in any better than I would in that kind of environment. Yeah. Like it's there's a lot of doing what you told. There's a lot of thinking for yourself in in the Marines being at the level they are as well. So like mm. I, it it depends what kind like to be honest, I think a lot of it was just the fact that I I had more to give, but I wasn't sure where to like it where to invest it, if that makes sense. Mm. So how old were you when you when you finished with those guys? I think I was around 26, 25, 26. I can't remember the exact dates. I was quite, quite mature then. You weren't like in and out. When you I was actually one of the young guys. I'm looking at my um, my troop here. Um, I've got the troop photo up there. I'm trying to figure out what date it was, but I can't because uh, it's not on there. But yeah, like I was actually one of the younger guys because I was a reservist. Um, so like that was part time essentially. Um, mm. And a lot of the guys, especially in London, were uh, like pushing towards the upper tier. I think the, the, the limit is 32. I think uh, for signing up. So you, th- so you went, so you left, and you beca- you started your own gym. Or yeah, that was a complete phase. Like it's again a very good thing to happen to me. Um, it was I, I set it up, had no idea how to run a business, thought it'd be easy. Um, it wasn't, <laughs> and it was very stressful. Um, and also I just wasn't, I didn't have the acumen to do. It. I didn't have the skill set. So like, despite being a good coach, I didn't have the business side of it. Um, and yeah. that was that was a completely different skill set. It is. Really it is really different. 
Uh, there's a lot of things that um, a lot of CrossFit coaches have to learn before they can uh, make any money. Yeah, sure. just because you can help someone snatch doesn't mean that you can run a sales campaign or do your financials or like do the admin side of things. It's a very different skill set. In fact, it's the same for, oh, let me think, a photographer as well or a writer. I mean, I have to be so many things before I can actually do the bit that I enjoy. Yeah, so, but, uh, yeah. So, Tell me about when you first started to coach um, athletes and, and particularly the mindset and, and how, and I want to know about, did you as a mindset coach ever experience sort of imposter syndrome at the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think we all do. Like, and I think it's there for a reason. I th- loads of people say they want to banish imposter syndrome, but the thing that I've learned about mindset is some thoughts are intrusive and they're problematic and they're, uh, they, we should try to get rid of them, but they're very few. Usually it's like your brain or your mind signaling you need to pay attention to something mm. and that imposter syndrome for me was just telling me that i didn't know enough yet which is always true like there's there's more to teach it's also untrue in the fact that i had a framework that worked really well but i just i need to learn more and like it's the same thing for athletes as well it's like your imposter syndrome is problematic because of your response to it not because of its existence so we need to develop a different relationship to those thoughts and kind of go okay Right. I'm, I'm experiencing imposter syndrome. Maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Maybe it's just telling me that I need to do something better. Because if you actually listen to it, it's saying things like, you need to work on your handstand push-ups more. You need to nail these things. Sometimes it goes too far because that's the voice that we've trained over and over and over again. But that's only because of our response to it. So like, imposter syndrome is a really interesting thing and i think that we are told that we shouldn't be experiencing thoughts but we are experiencing thoughts and the feeling that we shouldn't experience them just adds shame to the equation so when athletes first come to me and they're thing they're saying things like oh i just get so much self-doubt and i get so much like a fear of failure and i say okay that's fine we're just going to work around that they're like but i've got to get rid of it and so well you can't get rid of your thoughts if i say to you think of your favorite film your favorite film came to mind. You didn't create that thought. It just appears. So it's a different kind of relationship with our thoughts that we need. Hmm. How do you do that then? I mean, how would you, what how, what stages would you go through in order to re, to address that or to kind of, I don't even know how to, exp- how to express it. Would you pass all the thought in your brain and stick it in a box somewhere or do you accept it like you're meditating or what is it? How do you do so it? So there's, I, the first stage I, I put people through is a testing phase. Just like with physical training, you've got to know your starting point before you get to the end goal. Like you, if you're lost in the woods, you don't go, what's the old, where do I need to get to? You go, where am I? That's mm. the first thing you do. And so you put your point on a map. And to do that, I look at the nervous system regulation stuff. Because like we kind of discussed with my anxiety as a kid, like that has physical elements to it. Like look at physical trauma, mental trauma, emotional trauma. It's all part of the same system. And there's an interplay, there's an ongoing two-way conversation between the mind and the body because they are the same, like they're two elements of the same system. So I look at all of those things. And then when we address things like sleep quality, and we address things like hydration and screen time and daylight and movement and play and connection, the volume of the thoughts turns down. So it goes from like an eight out of 10, pretty much deafening to a four out of 10. That's some progress. Like you know this because when you've been away on holiday or when you're lucky enough to live in Mallorca and you have the sun all day, um, there's no stress there, right? Um, (laughs) 
No, I'm sorry, but even us lucky birds who live in Mallorca experience stress and anxiety, unfortunately. But we all we also all know that like when we're well slept and when we haven't over caffeinated, our thoughts are a little bit easier to, to mm. get a handle on. So that's first step. Get your biology working for you rather than against you. That's step number one. Step number two is getting to know the story that that represents. So maybe the imposter syndrome is you telling you you're not good enough. And then the process that I take people through is essentially developing that different relationship with it. So learn to see your thoughts. And we build out what are called bound nature roles. You can think of these like characters that you're playing. Say that again, bound yeah, ba- nature roles. Yeah, so there's two states that we can be in. This is just a framework to look at. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying these are hard and fast rules, but they're useful frameworks to have. You have free nature, which is I'm acting in a serving way. I feel free. Like we know what this feels like in a CrossFit competition or a CrossFit environment because I'm not putting pressure on myself. It's not overthinking. I'm finding that place of effortless effort where I'm working really hard, but I don't have to force myself to do it. I'm not comparing myself as much. My thoughts are quieter. My emotional state is like motivated, but not arrogant. Like my physical sensations, like I'm energized, my behaviors, and I'm just doing all the things. That's free nature. Bound nature is everything you don't want. So it's even that naive optimism of like, oh, I'll be fine. I don't need to do anything. Or it's the, oh, I'm screwed. Nothing could help me. There's victimhood in there. Or it's like anxious and stressed out and fearful. It's comparison. And then the behavior is basically non-serving behaviors. So we can either be in bound nature or free nature at any given moment. Like I can ask you now, are you in bound nature and free nature? And you have an idea of like roughly where you are. I can tell Mm -hmm. you that I'm in free nature now. I used to spend 95% of my life in bounds nature when I was 17, 16, that kind of age. Um, now it's pretty much 85% free nature. Um, so like that's roughly where we're, we're playing around with. And we can either be in bound nature or free nature. And one of the ways to draw more awareness to this, because awareness is one of the tools that we need, is to translate these into roles. The roles that we play out, the stories that we're acting out, the lines that we're reading, they're not truly us, which is why they feel so awful, because we are not the comparative part. We are not the part that is anxious and fearful with a thing experiencing that. So, And sometimes we get confused between the two. So I like to draw out these roles, these acting roles that people perform with people, uh, with, their, with the athletes I work with. And we do that by looking at what thoughts derail you, what emotions derail you, what physical sensations do that and what behaviors do that. And they kind of form little groups. I used to have one called Ian the Invincible. And I imagined Ian the Invincible as this like little scared man inside a big scary suit of armor. And he'd put the suit of armor on and stop being vulnerable, in other words, because he didn't want to be hurt. But that prevented me from progressing in a whole ton of ways. So other athletes have who we're working with at the moment. So um, our comparison Karen is one of them. So it's like, oh, Karen's here. That's another one. Pessimistic Polly is another one someone's working with at the moment. It's like, ah, oh, Polly's here. Like, there she is. She's shaking her head again. Oh, what's this? Anxious Anna is around that I'm working with someone at the moment. Um, I don't know what they've got girls' names at the moment, but they have probably because 80% of the people that work with a female. Really? Yeah. It's, I think part of it is the mental health conversation around like what's acceptable for guys to work on and girls to work on. It's getting better. It's, in, mm. like, it's getting more balanced over time. Um, but I am, maybe it's 75%. 75, 80%, something like that. But by creating these roles, we can go, huh, Ian's here. It's not me. I'm just watching Ian. And then we're less reactive to it. And when we're reactive to our emotional states, we start forcing them away and think I shouldn't be feeling that. And there's the shame associated with it. It's not only 
bad for our kind of achievement of the goal, but it's also not great for our mental, emotional state and mental health generally. Um, so what we have to do here is develop this different relationship where we can observe rather than being reactive to it. That's a skill though, isn't it? I mean, that's not something that happens quickly. <laughs> I think that now that we're we're kind of allowed to have um, more conversations about mental health and more conversations about how we're feeling mentally, um, it's actually becoming much less scary for a lot of people to talk about their feelings. But I mean, I think that all of that started to change around COVID times, actually, because I think that there was such a huge like, global experience of all of these feelings all at the same time that it became something that people were more naturally able to talk about. When I speak with my daughter, who has, after um, she's 17, when um, she last year and the year before she really had uh, problems with anxiety when I tell her about how I'm feeling if I'm feeling anxious it kind of blows her mind that another person's talking about it so I think that it's really helpful to have those conversations you said that 80 or 70 percent of your clients are, are women which is um I guess I shouldn't be surprised like you said but that the fact is that you're a guy was it hard for you when you were sort of stepping into this role to be able to be seen as effective or or as as or was it difficult for you to try to take on this role yeah it's it's an interesting one the dynamic between sex is obviously like a different a difficult conversation to manage as well there's it's it's a difficult like initially i, I think i found it tough because there's also the uh, the element of like i was a uh, mid-twenties guy talking to women about their mental state who are a bit older than me and they'd experienced more than me. And there's also, I think there's an element of this that like, I will never understand no matter, like, I think I know the way women think better than 99% of guys now because I am like, I look into their thoughts and I, I have conversations about their mental state with them, but there's an element that I'll never get. And I won't be able to get because I don't know the experiential level. And same with the other way around as well. You can't always get exactly what it's like, but you you eventually look beyond that and you see the person and like and it's an individual thing. But also people fit into different mindset models and there's processes for helping them. And to be honest, there's there's a slight different way that you speak to like or I coach guys and girls, and I didn't do it. I didn't realize I was doing it until a lot later um in fact in the last couple of years but with guys i'm way more do this sort your shit out let's get on with life like these are the things you need to do and i think guys need that i certainly needed that and i think women typically and again this is in 80 percent of the situations not all situations like respond better to a softer calmer let's explore that kind of approach and that's what i found i'm not saying it's right for everyone but it's just what i found personally when working with clients and there's sure there's people that break the mold on that but if you're going to say like the average point that's roughly what what happens so at the moment you're working with a wide range of crossfit athletes i guess age-wise as well as both genders the average athlete that i work with is masters athlete like that first couple of brackets of masters athletes we get a few teen athletes working their way in um we get a few kind of older masters athletes and they're mostly around that kind of um semi-finals quarterfinals kind of cusp but again we get outliers but like the, it wasn't the mean average would be like that kind of first couple of brackets of 
of um, masters athletes, which comes with this whole host of problems because you got you're not firstly you're not 22 years old and you don't recover by being like after being hit by a car the day after like no, you, you know, that, you takes, a, that <laughs> takes a little longer and you have a real life and you have complexity going on and you have relationships to deal with and you have a different career and you take other elements of your life more seriously and there's all these other complex um like added complexity scenarios that are added to it so like it has it has different um emphasis on it whereas like i'm working with one teen athlete who's very good right now and i can just throw anything at her and she's like okay new way of thinking i'll just do that whereas like mm. as a master's athlete we have all these years of conditioning that we have to break through first so it's a very different approach how long would you typically work with somebody 12 weeks that's what it takes to go through the, the first phase of coaching where they learn the fundamental skills because it's a skill set that we're working through just like i can go okay in 12 weeks or eight weeks i'll teach you how to snatch a barber pretty well like you'll get somewhat fun and sure there's some movement within that based on where people start and all that kind of stuff and where they want mm. to get to and their individual abilities. But like 12 weeks is a really nice starting point to go, okay, we're going to cover the fundamentals. And then some people come for like a top up one, like for a one month kind of intensive every kind of like nine months to a year or something like that. And like, what do people see you for like a, an hour a week or how does it work? Do you do one to one? I assume it's all one to one work that you have to do. Yeah, we've played around with a few different models. We've done some group stuff. And honestly, the group stuff is, it's not as personal, but it's more cost effective, which is great for people. But I actually think people get way more value from the one to one stuff. Like we have a way better success rate with one to ones, which is why we're sticking with it now. And yeah, the, um, the exact methodology is that I will give them the programming. So they know what they're doing in terms of nervous system regulation. They know what they're doing in terms of rewiring the story that they believe about themselves. And they know what they're doing for each training session and competition that comes up. So they've got like, for their mindset perspective, it's like Monday, week one, this is what I'm doing. Tuesday, week one, this is what I'm doing. So they have the exact steps because so much of mindset is like, well, I know I should be training my mindset, but what do I do? It's like, go meditate, but like, but how? Or go journal, mm. but how? Like have some gratitude, but, but how? Like, whereas what we do is we, itemize it and prescribe it to people and then every day i'll be checking in with them like okay look at your work looking for feedback that i can give you and kind of basically saying like this is what i see in the same way as like if someone was watching you deadlift a barbell and it's like you need to keep your hips down lower i can do the same with mindsets like okay this kind of thinking let's explore that what does that mean like where did that come from and how do we move beyond it and then we'll jump on a call for half an hour every week as well, just so we can really kind of go through anything we missed, catch up, but also explore things in a more intimate way. And honestly, everyone thinks that it's like a, the calls are where the, the magic happens, but the magic happens in putting the reps in. That, that's the sets and reps throughout the week. You're just training a new way of thinking. You're myelinating different pathways. You're, you're carving different neural pathways or reinforcing different neural pathways. So you learn to think differently. And I'd like to say it was all about me, but it's all about <laughs> them doing the work brilliant answer the so you'd say like meditation gratitude and uh, grat um, gratitude actions or what is it gratitude expressions of gratitude i just pulled a few examples out thinner um mm. i actually don't think those are the best tools for people to use i was just like they're just the things that you hear about it's like oh you should read this or you should listen to this podcast yeah. or you should meditate it's like well it depends on what your starting point is like the same the same way i wouldn't use it like i wouldn't use my training program that somebody's going to the crossfit games and it's the same, or I wouldn't use a CrossFit Games athlete with someone who's trying to win the London Marathon. Like, it's mm -hmm. just a different program for different needs. So depending on where people start, like, 
journaling is a really useful one, but it has a variety of different guises within it. So it's like, sometimes it's just free journaling, but sometimes it's got a real point to it. Sometimes we're writing down, what did you do well today? Sometimes we're writing down things like, if you don't succeed in your, in your vision, where does that leave you three years from now? Worst case scenario. So you can see that very different kind of feel. Yeah, exactly. But they're different exercises for different people. Um, breathwork, cold water exposure, sleep hygiene, hydration, getting steps in every day. Like they're the phys- the physical elements of it. What character tra- skill are you training in your in your session today? Like visualization. Like that's a huge one for athletes. Um, pre lift routines, pre competition routines, building those things out. Like there's so much to do, but it depends on like my goal is to figure out the smallest possible input for people that they can implement on their, their training as a whole. Like what what has an outsized leverage response for them? Like that's the that's the goal for me. Do you ever go with um, your your athletes to competition? Very you, rarely. You... Like very, very rarely. Like they've done the work already. They don't need me there. They've, they've done it. And like in most scenarios, they go there, and especially when they've completed the 12 weeks. And it's like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Like I don't need Tom there because like I've done my, done my sets and reps. Even when we worked with Brent Bukowski for a bit and it was like, he knows what to do. Like by the time we've taught him the system, like he knows how to go out and execute it. Like we don't need to get involved as much as I'd like to be out there. Like it's, it's not important for me to be there. Yelling for Brent is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was an easy guy to work with. Very yeah, easy. Yeah. He's got a great reputation of being a top bloke. Yeah. So you say we, is it more than you doing the coaching? Yeah. We've got a couple of coaches on top. Like we've just had a big restructure of the way we do things because quite frankly, like the business side of things wasn't working very well. It's like, it was great in terms of we serving loads of, loads of athletes, but it was just like, it was constant stress, um, in terms of the admin side of things. So we, we structured it a little bit differently. There's now myself and two other coaches working for us and they're very, they're part-time, I'm full-time. And it's like, we have a maximum capacity of 25 athletes at once. It's pretty exclusive at the moment. Mm. How do you keep yourself healthy if you're taking care of all of these people? That's one of the reasons we restructured. Um, yeah. Because when you're working 14 hours a day and you're spending that whole time exploring other people's mental, emotional states, it's pretty heavy. And like this is not most conducive. So, like now, I've got a bit more space in my day. Just finished up some golf practice. That was, that was a nice way to take my mind off things. Do you have your own coach? Not a mindset coach as such. Um, I'm actually looking for someone to mentor me. I tr- like, honestly, like, this is going to sound very arrogant. Or I don't think it is because it's about the ideas. The ideas that we teach, I can't find them anywhere else, and I can't find. And I'm really struggling to find someone who's doing it at a better level than myself, which isn't just reading. Because sure, I can like to get to the top level, I can go and read Carl Jung, and kind of like obviously his psychoanalysis is, is incredible and beautiful, and like finding someone who's doing the similar kind of framework but a higher. The, so this situate this is a kind of a broad approach. Lot, there's lots of focus. If you look at the cross continuum through sickness, wellness, fitness, mm. so much of the mental health conversation is from sickness to wellness. And it's like avoiding being sick. It's just getting you up to baseline normal. But there's barely anyone going from like, okay, you're at standard like point, you're, you're at zero. How do we get you from zero to 100? And there's a lot of it from minus 100 to zero. And like that area, the zero to 100 is what I'm interested in. And like, and I think it's actually what most people have because I personal opinion is a bit controversial. I don't think people are suffering from mental health as much as we think they are. I think they don't have the means to develop mental fitness and it, sh- it manifests itself as a kind of, in a, in a society that over 
over categorizes or pathologizes things. Like I think it shows up as that. My personal opinion, and I don't think it's very popular, but that's what I've experienced working with people. Because people come to me and they go, I know I don't need a therapist about this. It's CrossFit. Like I know I don't, don't need a counselor about this. Like it's just training, but it's really difficult and I'm struggling with it. And like that's a different kind of conversation compared. And if again, if we take the same approach of like, how do we get you back to like if we just spend the whole time doing like psychoanalysts on you, that's probably not the best approach. Like, how would we give you tools to be better? That's a different approach. It's like, do you think then there's, there might actually still be a stigma attached to talking to somebody like you then? Does, is it yeah, showing, so. do you think they're sh- in some ways they're, like, they're showing that they're weak because they've got a coach? Yeah, some of it's that. Um, some of it's just very personal and it feels very intimate and you don't, I don't think any everything has to be public, which is mm. why a lot of our athletes are just like would rather me not mention by name. Yeah, that's why I'm deliberately not asking for any. It's their business, not mine. Exactly. And, and I know quite a few athletes who have coaches that, that are for mindset and they're excited. They kind of give them all kinds of names, like performance coach or psychologist, or they they, they have like various descriptions. But the person is doing is fulfilling the same kind of role. Yeah, Which is exactly. Get up your own head and win a competition, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's basically <laughs> in a, it. Yeah, in a nutshell, let, let the body do the work and stop the mind trying to take over. I mean, if we go back to the original thing you were talking about—the connection between the mind and the body—I mean, it's still a bit of a revelation to some of us, me included, how much our mind actually controls our physical reaction to things, and how can you overcome that? Some of it is awareness and just accepting it. It's like a child on the swing. Like you push a child on the swing, you push that reaction away from you, and it swings back. You push it away harder, and it swings back harder. Like so, you, uh, the way to do it is allowed to settle, and that's partly awareness. Like that's what meditation is meant to teach. It doesn't always because of our interpretation of it, but like you're meant to allow it to settle and just be okay with the small breezes. So that's part of it. And then it's finding what works for you. I mean, so when someone works with me. I just get them to put in a bunch of details for the first 10 days when they're testing with me. And it's like, I try and remember them off the top of my head. It's sleep hours, sleep quality, steps is sometimes in there for some people. So step count for the day, there's hydration, there's the first time you saw natural light, your emotional state throughout the day, your kind of arousal meter. So like one being depressed and lethargic, 10 being stressed and anxious. And I'm forgetting about five or six other things in there. But I get them to track all that. And just depending on where they are, I know the leverage point. Like someone's sleeping four hours a day or a night, then we've got some like it's very obvious what we do there. Breath work is a is a big one for people. I find that most people are kind of over aroused. Um, so they're constantly stressed out, pushing, especially if they're crossfit athletes, they're not allowing themselves time to come back down into that parasympathetic state. And breath work is a good tool to do that. Cold water exposure works for some people, doesn't work for other people. It's something called yoga nidra. Just like yoga sleep, it's essentially what it is. Lying down, closing your eyes, deep relaxation process. Best bit of yoga. Yeah, yeah, love it. <laughs> love it. It's really beneficial for people. And it, like, there's some studies that show that it replicates REM sleep, so that dream state, which is really important for emotional processing and learning new skills. Hence, if you're across an athlete, learning new skills the whole time very important like tweaking your your technique and doing things that are emotionally challenging so yeah like it depends where they are i hate the it depends answer but it depends on where they are i mean you can't be you can't be specific because there's it's a way of of, um 
of uh, answering that question unless you're actually speaking about one single person. So I don't, I can't expect you to be specific. But if you had to tell me, like Vicky, this is the one thing that's going to make you feel better. What's sleep? Thank you. It's always yeah. sleep. My husband, well. He thinks that he's some kind of rock star if he gets five hours a night. I'm like, no, mate, eight. <laughs> eight hours a night is normal, not five. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Makes such a difference. Sleep's one of those things with a, a cultural lens on it, though. Like some people view sleep as, like, a, or a lack of sleep as a badge of honor. Yes. And, like, and also coming from a military background as well, like, oh, I can get back. Like, we didn't sleep for 72 hours at, at a time. It's like, really? Yeah, and it's like we well, get like half an hour maybe tops like within that, and it's like and that was just in training. Guys who deploy, it's far harder. So like that, it, you come from like a praising that and valuing that response for lack of sleep, and that's quite ingrained into our culture. But I think there's as much to be like you're in a we're in a very comfortable time now in a, in society where we can get that sleep, and it is just the foundation of everything. Like if I like Andrew Huberman always says that sleep is the foundation of med- uh, mental and physical health and performance. And yeah, the, you can't you can't say it better than that. It's the foundation of everything we do. Are you going to Berlin? Uh, I'm not actually. It's not on the agenda. Oh, um, come on! But it's, it's one of those things that's like it's one of those things that's like not at the moment. It, there's a high chance it will creep in. Hmm. Well, I will be there. I would love it to love to meet you in person. But another time, we should continue these conversations. It'd be great to get some questions from actual athletes. So, what I'll do next time is I'll put terms um, on stories and see what people yeah. come back with. Because it'd be great to do like a Q and A. Yeah, would love that. Um, we could even, you know, it'd be very useful is like an Instagram live. Yeah, people can ask questions and we can kind of go through those in more detail. Um, because like it's one thing me talking in very conceptual terms, but mm. very different from a conversation. Yeah, we could try that for sure as well. But in the meantime, how do people get hold of you? Instagram's the best place. Tom Foxley on Instagram, F O X L E Y. Our website's kind of pottering around. We've got a podcast, um, Limitless Athlete Podcast, which is me. 10, 15 minutes every single week describing one kind of actionable step that people can take. Blogs is on mindsetrx.com. Instagram's the main place though. That's where I'm most active. I tried LinkedIn and I was like, oh, something like that. Oh, it's so boring. It's so boring. So corporate. Yeah. I mean, it's very helpful for when you need to suddenly generate a CV. Yep. (laughs) If you keep it up to date, then it can generate a CV for you. That's my little tip. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. LinkedIn is for is forum for nerds. <laughs> right, thanks so much, Tom, and I'll speak to you soon. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. I'm off to get a nap now. If you enjoyed our chat, please share with your friends. It all helps the show to grow. This episode was presented by me, Vicky McLeod, and edited by Marta Vidal Candel. Until next time, thanks for listening and bye bye. Don't miss the next episode. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Europe is Coming is a programme production and hosted by Vicky McLeod.